Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. Today, I'm joined by Angela Denise Davis. Originally from Wichita, Kansas, Angela now calls Atlanta, Georgia home. A ukulele instructor and an ordained minister, she's the founder of a ukulele griot collective, which offers music instruction that focuses on awakening musical skills in adults via the ukulele. Like so many adults, Angela took piano lessons for many years as a child and was involved in middle school chorus, but discontinued her music instruction after high school. She had a profound loss of vision in 2003 and became legally blind, which caused her to rethink how she could engage music. Angela ultimately discovered the ukulele in 2015, and it changed her life. In January of 2019, she started teaching ukulele classes and formed the Ukulele Griot Collective. The collective focuses on awakening musical skills in adults in order to increase social engagement and foster joy in making music. Davis assists students in laying a foundation that will provide a framework for independent learning beyond group instruction. She believes that almost anyone can learn to play the ukulele and reap a wealth of benefits from music instruction. Her work as a minister focuses on how the fusion of art and spirituality can enlarge the ground beneath our feet and enrich the ways we move in personal and social spaces. She's a graduate of Clark Atlanta University, where she earned a BA in art. She also holds a Master of Divinity from Vanderbilt University Divinity School and a Master of Science in Rehabilitation Counseling from Georgia State University. Davis is a creator, host, and producer of the Zami Nobla podcast. This podcast is for lesbians over 40 who have always wanted a sound source that gets them. The show centers their lives with conversations about health and wellness, love and relationships, and current events. Angela, Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? I am doing great, Michelle, and so glad to be here with you today. Thank you. Well, yeah, Wichita to Atlanta. I mean, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, that one has been quite a a change of life, you know, culturally. Well, there were a lot of stops in between 
um, there because actually this is my second go-around here in Atlanta. I left after college and moved away to uh, Indiana, Oregon, uh, Tennessee, Minnesota, um, and then back to Atlanta for the the second time, and then uh, spent some time in San Francisco. And so I think now I am pretty much settled here in Atlanta and just really enjoying all the many ways that we are forming community here in the great state of Georgia. Mm, okay. uh, you know, I mean, we had uh, Stacey Abrams was here for um, oh. the NAACP convention. I mean, just so mm. phenomenal. I've watched her career. I live briefly in Atlanta, and I know that sense of community, which is, like, so great there, and I yes. I love what you're doing there. You talk about like so many adults, okay? I went to Catholic school. We had, mm-hmm. we had the mm-hmm. piano, and, I mean, it's like you said, so many, so many in our adults, we've had, like, some kind of lessons, piano lessons, something as a child, and as soon as you get into high school or after high school, you're done. Okay, I mean, and I think that the only thing that I ever wanted to do was to play the harp. And and my father asked me, did I aspire to be an angel because he thought I wasn't going to make it, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And then I kind of let music go. But music remained a big part of your life, even going into your ministry. Were there musicians? Mm -hmm. Was your family a musical family? Did you have musicians in your family? Uh, you know, it's, it's it's interesting that you talked about going to Catholic school because what that made me think of was my years in Catholic school during my elementary years of understanding space and quiet and solitude and then transferring that to the church I went to the Protestant church in Wichita where uh, I had an opportunity just to spend a lot of time in the church itself with the silence and the, the space. Uh, and music was a part of both of those, of those elements. You know, we would sing as kids uh, in school and we would sing and I was a part of the choir uh, during my years uh, at church but my family also would gather and we were we'd sing my uncles were ministers and my aunts were prayer warriors and so we did a lot of singing as a community so it was not uncommon for us to have family gatherings where we would um get around the piano my cousin Regina would play or we would just sing and that was just it was standard and in addition to that there was a lot of music in the house, you know, so I was always listening to music. One of the things my sisters and I always enjoyed was going down to Wichita Public Library and checking out music uh, records from the uh, collection and just really enjoying music. So we were singing music, we were listening to music, we were playing music. When you got it, you said you discontinued your instruction after high school. Did you, like, lose music? interest for a minute or you just said I don't want to practice I just want to enjoy music well you know it's very interesting between 9 to 16 I would take classical lessons at Wichita State University um, off and on and 
as I got to be a teenager, I decided I really wanted to take jazz, and my mother had other plans for me. She was not <laughs> financing uh, a jazz uh, piano uh, lessons. She wanted uh-huh. me to stick with classical music and play in church and things like that. So I just decided uh, I don't have a love for music that much anymore. Um, and, you know, they say you cut off your nose to spite your face. Um, uh-huh. It was one of those things where now I look back and said, oh, my goodness, you were just um, not very bright to give up on, on that instruction. So I really decided once I couldn't play jazz piano and I kind of got tired of classical music, which I love, um, to, to not engage that anymore. But also at the time, I was really getting into art. You know, I was very active in photography in high school and would later do a concentration in photography and printmaking at Clark Atlanta University during my college years. So I had a lot of competing um, desires, and I think I just decided, okay, I've been doing piano for a long time, and I played the clarinet and band, so now let me just do this thing with photography and see where that takes me. Hmm. Hmm. That's interesting. Well, you know, because... To me, the arts and a level of spirituality, there's a connection, mm-hmm. you know. And, you know, although you went to Clark for the arts, you went back and got a Master's of Divinity. Did you see that connection between art and spirituality and how art can move and touch the spirit and the soul and Often that's what people are are so lacking these days, you know, that that connection. Well, you know, when I was uh, a young girl, um, I remember sitting in the the sanctuary, church sanctuary, with my pastor, and he asked me, what do you want to be? And I told him very clearly, I want to be a preacher just like you. Mm. So my church, he he later retold the story to the congregation on that next Sunday morning, so the church uh, never let me forget that. So they always supported this little black girl in Wichita, Kansas, from the time of six or seven, who said she wanted to be a preacher, and they supported that. I think for me, what I heard in his sermons, I mean, he wasn't this extraordinary uh, minister. I think he was extremely authentic in what he said. But more importantly, I think what I heard in his voice and the voices of my mother's friends and the little physical, the physicality of the voices of of her friends and of um, family members was just the importance of language and the weight of words and how when words were shaped uh, in a very specific way, they had meaning and they could do things to you, make you feel good, make you feel bad. And that, in addition to being this kid, uh, of listening to all of this music at the library. We listened to a lot of um, Broadway soundtracks, um, recordings, Broadway recordings and movie soundtracks. So you had all of this, these huge themes and music and emotion. Um, and so I think what I found in, in that and in those voices and in that music was a very real spiritual connection of how we move in the world through these bodies, which allow us to sing and to speak, to do poetry, to rap, uh, to do all of this wonderful thing that really gives shape and meaning to our world. So 
all of those things, I think, really influence my sense of call in the ministry, how I see myself as a minister in the world today, and the way that art is just deeply, deeply connected uh, to spirituality. I mean, I don't, I don't see a, a difference between those, those two um, things, art and spirituality. They go hand in hand to me. You know, it, it's interesting because, you know, I've talked to a number of people who are in the clergy, and it's interesting that some women who were in the clergy did not feel supported by, you know, their mm. pastor or whoever they went to. But then there's others who, like you, went mm-hmm. and you told him, and the next Sunday, you know, he's put you on, on notice mm-hmm. and put, let the whole world know mm-hmm. that this is what what you wanted to do. Your path into the ministry, was it always that supportive? Extremely so. But I think I came from a um, a denomination. I grew up Christian Church Disciples of Christ. And so we had some very big uh, women leaders, you know, Cynthia Hale, who is now the minister of Ray of Hope in Atlanta, uh, was a major major influence on me as a kid because I saw this woman doing ministry and preaching and I said, oh my goodness, that's what I want to be. So I, I had all these models of women like Cynthia Hale who would preach and the church was supportive. They bring in women for revivals. Um, and although my aunts weren't preachers, uh, they grew up in the Methodist church, CME, AME in Texas and later would move to Kansas. But um, they weren't preachers, but they were devout women who mm-hmm. I believe if they had been men, they would have been preachers. But hmm. they knew their Bible back and forth. They could pray, and if anyone needed prayer, they would call on artisy. And I would read the Bible with my Aunt Froney. And so I had these, these pillars uh, of, uh, of a real theological education with with my aunt and uh, with my mother who just supported this this desire I had for ministry. You know, I was a little kid who would be the only one, only kid at prayer meetings. I had a huh. Bible and, and all these translations. I had uh, a concordance. I mean, I had all of these tools, and I spent a lot of time reading. So uh, I can't say enough about how supportive my family and my community was, even though theologically I have moved so far away from that place, um, it was their support that really uh, fostered my understanding of the importance of being connected to one's spirituality and understanding one's theological foundations. I'm... I was raised Catholic, you know, my father, Mm -hmm. that was his way of revolting against the family that we became Catholic and we were just like Catholic. And that quiet that you talk about, you know, that, Mm -hmm. that, that, that being with yourself is something that I've always continued to carry. Although I haven't, you know, practiced Catholicism in God knows how long, but um, how did it, and you, I saw, I have friends and fam- and other family members who were not Catholic, where it was, their church experience was different. But you were able to take that and and see it in both places. 
Did you ever feel any contradictions between what you were learning from Catholic school and then when you went home and on Sunday your family went to had a different religious experience? Um, you know, I think there was a lot of freedom in our home. For instance, my mom and dad went to two different churches. You know, my, my dad was Baptist and my mother was part of the Christian Church of Disciples of Christ. And for them, that wasn't an issue. I'm sure other persons would have said and couples would have said, oh, my goodness, I can't believe you two are going to different churches. Um, but that was their desire. That's what they wanted. Um, uh-huh. I had family members who were part of different denominations, and I saw how differently they worshipped. Um, I read a lot of books about religion and spirituality and saw that there was just a wide, a wide range of options that we could have. So I think because I was in a place where um, I was given space to see how different the world could be, I didn't think it was odd. Now, I, would, I will also say that I was... I would also say that I was the, the kid who had um, Jimmy Swagger's greatest hit, you know. So I was mm-hmm. in a very conservative space, uh, even as I say all that, and had a sense of where I was and where I wanted to be planted. But I saw just a wide sense of diversity in the world, and I think that really helped um, allow me to be someone who understood that we're not um, – rooted in one place where we can't move and can't breathe, but you can have a real sense of who you are and appreciate other people's experience and allow that to even help you understand more about your own experience. So because of all of that diversity and that openness, I think it wasn't a problem. So, okay, so then you go back and you get your degree, your master's degree in divinity. Did you immediately, I know that you were at the um, the Baptist College, you were over continuing education. Did you ever do the, have a church, or were you ever affiliated as pastoring or associate pastoring, or did you go into continuing education at, at a no. college? I went to American Baptist College as the director of continuing education uh, after divinity school and after I had a stint of working in student ministry in Portland, Oregon with a church there uh, and then uh, went to divinity school from there from Oregon to to Tennessee at Vanderbilt uh, and then graduated and went to uh, American Baptist College, and then later went to Vanderbilt Divinity School as admissions director. So I think for me, um, having had some experience in the church doing student ministry, um, and I also preached a lot. Uh, so mm. my call is really not to pastor. I think that's a very specific mm-hmm. a specific call. And a lot of times people assume just because you're an ordained minister, you're a pastor, and that's not true. Uh, my my gifts and my interests lie in preaching and theological reflection, theological education. So being able to do the work at American Baptist and at Vanderbilt Divinity School really spoke to my passion and my call as someone who wanted to help people um, journey through their theological 
education pathway. Um, so that's kind of where I see myself in ministry as one who offers theological reflection and kind of help people through opportunities to do spiritual um, direction. And also now with the ukulele with music, helping people understand in congregations how music, and specifically using something like ukulele, can help in moments of uh, spiritual reflection, can be a tool for meditation, mindfulness. Um, so I think I'm pulling all of those desires in now as I'm doing work in music and ministry. You know, I think that you, you put it so perfectly. You know, I often talk, have told you how you and your partner are so much like my partner and I. She is also an ordained minister, and she has had several oh, you should come and do this. And she said, no, that's not what I want to do. And a lot of the ways that she talks about her, her calling is through like mm-hmm. things like you're talking about meditation, a different type of spirituality. And, and you know, and, and when I hear you talk, it's sort of like, you know, are they sharing notes or what? But it's really interesting. Um, now, you said from the time when you were first in Atlanta and to the time that you're back now, what have you seen that's different? How does it feel different to you? Well, the most obvious difference is that the second time I came back to Atlanta in 2007, I came back as a person who is legally blind. And before, uh, when I was a college student in the late 80s, early 90s, I had 20-20 vision and could tell Uh the difference between lilac and lavender. I can no longer do that. So Uh uh, I think having had a very traumatic health situation in 2003, which ultimately left me legally blind and um, coming back to Atlanta in 2007, really um, saw a different Angela, a different woman um, Uh navigating the world. Uh Well, we're going to take our first break, and when we come back, we are going to talk about the ukulele. So we'll be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. back here on Collections by Michelle Brown, and I'm speaking with Angela Denise Davis. Now, I'll tell you, how often did you go, are you that Angela? <laughs> you got <laughs> quite the name, Angela Davis. Yes. Uh, you know, and 
and that that has to be sort of a lot of interesting stories I imagine that you've gotten about that. But here you yes. come back, and you know, and your power to the people has been through the ukulele. Mm-hmm. How? I mean, you know, um, I, like we were talking before, other than like in seeing, um, I forget what show it was that, that my, I had an aunt who used to watch, and there'd be a guy, and he had a ukulele. And then I had two friends who played the ukulele, but they were mm-hmm. both white. And so mm-hmm. when I first saw you with this ukulele, I'm going like, how did she connect with that? <laughs> how did you connect with the ukulele? It is so true. Uh, the, the the large larger part of the ukulele community, certainly here in the States, is white. And um, as a matter of fact, a, a very famous ukulele player told me, he said, you know, 80% of ukulele players in the country are white and the remaining 20 are basically Asian. And so there's a smidgen of color. So he was really glad to see me at a ukulele um, conference. I got involved with the ukulele because in the latter part of 2014, I was watching a Kennedy Center Honors, and they were honoring, among others, Cicely Tyson and Rita Moreno. Uh, Yo-Yo Ma was performing that night, uh-huh. and he, the child, a great cello player, and there was something to hear him, which was wonderful, but I felt as if I needed to get up from the bed and actually go to the television. And, and if you know me, you know the way I watch TV, I have to really go and, and look closely like an inch from the television to see what's really going on if I want to, to do that. So I got up and I went and I saw his body, his body just being totally possessed by the music. And I had this flashback of being this little kid sitting in Wichita playing the piano and my body being possessed by the music. And I understood it wasn't about a level of professionalism or expertise. It was about one's willingness to be mounted, so to speak, or to be willing to be embodied by music in such a way as to allow other people to connect with you. And the next day I said, oh, my goodness, this is it. I've been missing music all these years. And at the time, you know, of course, I was legally blind. I had been legally blind for a number of years. And I no longer played the piano because it was difficult to see and I couldn't read sheet music. And I Googled the easiest instrument to learn, and huh. what came back was the ukulele. It's easy to learn but hard to master. Um, and some people don't like for folks to really say that because the ukulele is an instrument just like a flute or the piano or the clarinet or saxophone. It is a legitimate instrument, and it does require some study. But what's so amazing about the ukulele is that you can pick it up and with a matter of minutes play a song with one, two, or three chords, and you just don't see that. Uh, in, in that way with other instruments where somebody can just pick it up and experience the joy of music. So I went out and I bought a ukulele. And at that point, um, I took it to church with me. It was my, my next speaking gig. And I told the congregation, I said, I'm going to come back and preach in three months and I'm going to be able to play you a song. Because I couldn't even play any song at that point in time. I just got it the previous day. 
And I went back three, three months later. This was at the first existentialist congregation here in Atlanta. I preached there occasionally. And I played Hallelujah for them by Leonard Cohen. Um, wow. And as I say, the rest is history. I discovered that it was so meaningful to me that I wanted to teach this. So I've been playing for four and a half years and started earlier this year teaching folks and then just recently formed the Ukulele Griot Collective where there are a number of us who come together and study each week so that we can share music in our community. Now, how easy was it to find a ukulele? I mean, you know, I mean, did you just walk into a music store? I mean... I mean, it's, well, I, I guess for some reason I thought that would be like an exotic, you know, instrument. Well, you know, what's interesting about the ukulele is that some people will just buy one offline from Amazon or they just go down to their music store and pick one up. But you really need to find um, a store that specializes in doing a great setup. Ukuleles require setups where you make sure the frets aren't sharp, the action, which is the level of the strings, is appropriate for you as a player, that the, the neck isn't warped. And so we have a store here in Atlanta called Duke Republic. And I heard about Duke Republic as I was searching the, the Internet for ukuleles, and I had no idea that it was here in Atlanta until I looked at the bottom of the page and said, oh, this is in Osdell, Georgia. This is just like 14 minutes from me. Uh, it is one of the world's best ukulele stores. Wow. So I have developed a relationship with Mike and Donna there, and they're just great people. And it's where I get my ukuleles, and I recommend people to get ukuleles because you really want a great instrument. A lot of people will pick up a ukulele, and they'll stop playing because it doesn't feel good. It's uncomfortable. The action's too high. The frets are sharp. And they think something's wrong with them, and it's not. Something's wrong with their instrument. So I tell people, just don't buy something from Amazon because it's cheap. Go to Uh a store, if you can, where people are um, buying uh, ukuleles that have been set up. Or just find somebody online who plays a ukulele. There are a lot of players. And people are so gracious. Write the person. Ask the person. Look at what people are playing. And then you can make a decision as to how to buy the best instrument for you. So when you went in, okay, first question. Did your background in music, you know, from back in the day when you studied piano and all that, Mm -hmm. did that help you with learning the, the ukulele? And when you decided that that was it, and after you got the instrument, who helped you learn your way around it? I mean, I know the keys, notes are notes, you know, but mm-hmm. it's different. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yes, my my musical background did help me. Um, knowing the piano and knowing chords um, and being able to read sheet music, even though you can just read tablature, which is just a notation of where to place your fingers on the frets. It's not actually reading notes. Um, You can read tablature and not know music, but having had some experience with music and knowing um, about the fundamentals of rhythm, harmony, and melody was very beneficial for me, 
um, because I think the, the one thing that I want to do when I teach my students is really talk about music as being a relationship between notes, what you're hearing, and how those notes um, fall together in a specific rhythm. So you have your rhythm, your melody, and your harmony. If you know that, uh, and if you come to the ukulele with that, you do have an edge up. What's exciting, though, is to see guitar players who come to the ukulele because they're already familiar with the fretted instruments and, and chord shapes. They're, they're really up on the game because they can quickly, you know, get in and run with it. So it's really exciting. But, but yes, if someone has a musical background, I think it, it is easier um, but at the same token, I, I have a student I taught earlier this year. She had no background in music. Um, and by the time we finished, she was reading ukulele tablature. She was uh, being able to make chord transitions. And now she loves the ukulele, and she plays it for herself, for her own joy, and she's sharing that with her grandkids. So that's the one thing that I love about the ukulele. It's accessible, whether or not you've had music instrument or a history of that in the past, or uh, if you're just brand new to it, it can be really accessible for you. And I believe there was a second part of that question, which you just have to remind me of. Who taught you? Ah, yes. Uh, I mean, <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, I, mean yeah. I could see where, where you'd be that moved, but yeah. I'd, be, I'd be like, you know, you did it. Who taught you? So the, the first thing that I did, was um, to um, try to find someone here in Atlanta who could, you know, kind of help me. Um, and there was a guy named Arnold who uh, was starting a teaching practice. Um, and I went to sit with him for a couple of times. And he looked kind of far out, so it really wasn't that feasible for me. But what he taught me with those two 30-minute lessons was, just the importance of how you position your your body. You know, posture is keen, how you play, um, how you're not, you know, playing from your elbow, but really it's the flicking of your finger and a slight turn of the wrist, um, making sure that you're holding the ukulele at a 45-degree angle. I mean, these are some very basic fundamentals he taught me, and we went over some basic chords. What I have done in the past two and a half years, basically, has been – to teach myself. So when there's an opportunity to learn, I will seize it. Uh, I've had an opportunity to go to a, a great um, uh, workshop that was here in Atlanta led by a guy named Petey McCarty. He's out of Memphis. He came here and did a workshop. I had a chance to do a workshop with Daniel Ward, who was a phenomenal musician and arrangement composer. And he did um, a workshop out in San Francisco when I was living in San Francisco in 2017. I was able to do something with him. Um, and there are people like Samantha Muir, who she's this wonderful uh, composer, arranger, player in um, Great Britain, um, who has made these incredible um, arrangements of guitar pieces for the ukulele, and she's written some, composed some herself. And we have this body now of, of this incredible work 
like Samantha Mears doing and other people uh, like John King in the past have done with classical music. There's so much stuff out there that if you get something and you know some basic music and your discipline, you can teach yourself and uh, load up on lots of YouTube videos. I'm, I'm kind of obsessive in that way. Uh, and go and be in community with people. Find other people who play and play with you. Uh, attend local workshops when you see them. If there's a ukulele festival, go to it. There are many ways in which you can do this yourself. There's some great online instruction. I think for me, because there is something that tends to be a little obsessive about my personality, and I do have a music background, and I'm really good at picking up things, uh, being able to just you know, be quite disciplined about getting stuff and practicing and learning it has, has been a real tool for me. But I'm also um, uh, interested in kind of upping my game. And so this year I also did some work with Kevin Carroll. He's a, a ukulele teacher out of Austin, and he held a ukulele teacher summit, which I attended in um, June, uh, no, July of, of this year. So opportunities like that for professional development uh, has been very important for me. So I think if people want to learn, now there are many more opportunities than there were probably 10 or 20 years ago. Now you see people popping up who are offering instruction. Um, so I, I'm largely self-taught. Mm-hmm. What was the first song you learned? I had a friend who went to learn to play something, and, and she was like, they had me playing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. You know, what was the first song that they taught you to play? Um, I, I got to remember. I think one of the first songs that Arnold gave me and we worked on um, was probably the Lava song. It's a it's a very familiar song. And also, um, blues, I was working on Blue Skies and Ain't Misbehave, and he asked me the music that wow. I wanted to, to learn. So. Uh, we went through some some basic chords with that. But, yeah, it's basically the Lava Song, you know, Happy Birthday is a three-chord song, just some of those <laughs> those basic songs. But what I tell people, and I tell my students this, um, it doesn't matter if you're playing Row, Row, Row Your Boat or Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. What matters is the mindfulness you bring to each string and how you fret that string how you strum it or pluck it, because you can play a a piece by Bach on the ukulele, but if your fretting and your strumming and your plucking isn't clear, it doesn't matter. We started with those basic things of being very intentional and mindful with how we are getting in tune with every note, and that's what makes a difference. I liken it to when I learned Braille. Uh, I started to learn Braille in 2006, and I had a teacher, and she gave us some Dr. Seuss books to learn. And I was outdone. How dare she get a joke? Why are we learning this? This is child's play. And I later understood that if you can be very mindful about learning those dots and filling them on the tips of your fingers – then it doesn't matter if it's Dr. Seuss or War and Peace. What matters is your intentionality around the work you're doing and how you're committed to the task of reading Braille or playing the ukulele. Same difference. Uh-huh. 
So you made that bold statement that you were going to come back. Yeah, I'm going to play the yeah. game. How long was it before you went back and you played, and what was the response? So I, um, I went there, it was like probably June the 15th or 14th uh, in 2015, and then I, I went back in March, and I played Hallelujah. And what's neat is that this, this congregation, the first existentialist congregation of Atlanta is philosophically based. So they're really about existentialism and your uh, being present in the world in the way in which, fully in the way in which you show up. So I think for them, they got a kick out of me uh, bringing back my ukulele and saying, this is what I'm doing and this is music. I'm, I'm, I'm exerting all of who I am in this act. And it was beautiful because even though I missed a quarter too because I was nervous as heck, they sang with me. And that's the gift of the ukulele. It's such a communal instrument. I'm really bad about lyrics. I have to work on on memorizing lyrics and stuff. But it's wonderful when you're playing a chord and a group of friends or a congregation sings with you. It's magic. And so I'm a big believer in congregational singing, be it in the African-American tradition or what happens at First E here in Atlanta. When people get together and sing, there's something electric about that. So that was a moment for us to come together, for me to play uh, in my my very beginner way, uh, <laughs> this beautiful song by Leonard Cohen, and it was just a, a great moment, one that I treasure and I'm so glad to, to have shared with First E. So the Ukulele Griot Collective, how did that come about? And is it... Are you just teaching or are you, are you learning from people who come into this space? So my um, instructional um, offering is called Uke Griot, U-K-E, which is short mm-hmm. for ukulele, Uke Griot. And, of course, we know that Griot is the name for uh, the, the history of those who tell and, and hold tradition in um, mm-hmm. uh, our culture, um, and so I started my own business in uh, naming myself as Uke Greel because I really wanted to tell the story that music has to offer and to help people learn how, through music, they could tell their own life story. Uh, and because I am legally blind, I really base my teaching on um, an oral perspective, A-U-R-A-L, an oral perspective, mm-hmm. how we are hearing things as opposed to just throwing a court diagram at you. And so I tell people this is the way in which I teach, but I'm also aware of the fact that my teaching, there's a trinity aspect. It's what I give you as an instructor. It's what mm-hmm. you're going to learn from your peers, and it's what you learn through self-discovery because music ultimately is self-discovery. It's when you're playing a note and you move over to another fret and it's different and you're like, oh, that sounds neat. That's self-discovery. It happens when we sit down and we hold our instrument. It happens when we sing, you know. Um, so that, that component of those, those three parts is really important in terms of my teaching, Scott Stout, and letting people know that we're learning from each other. You know, I don't know it all. I mean, there's no way I could know it all in music. No way anyone 
can know it all in music. We're all continually learning. And so this summer when I formed the Ukulele Grio Collective, which is a, a group of eight musicians that I'm working with, um, we learn. I offer um, pieces and lead the group through that. Um, there's also an opportunity for members to bring in pieces that they want us to learn to play, and so we do that as well. We share different strumming techniques. If someone has something they like, uh, we talk about it because I think um, one of the things that's just so important is for us to kind of um, push down the ego when it comes uh-huh, to a teaching uh-huh. mode and realize that, you know, you don't, you don't always have it. You don't always have it. It really is a shared experience. And I think that's something as a, a legally blind teacher that, that really um, has been important for me to embrace because I'm sure some people would say, well, how can you teach music as uh, someone who's legally blind and you can't read the music or the information without blowing it up, you know, ten times or what have you. And, I really talk about the fact that we live in shared spaces, be it uh-huh. a music room or be it in the church room or, or any other place. If we think that we have it all, we're going to miss the point because the, the real, I think, essential element of the teacher is someone who's always open to learning. So I learn from my students as much as I share with them and believe that that's just a foundational aspect of how we learn things in this world. You know, it is a shared experience of of what we know and what we're willing to receive from others. You know, the other thing that I think is is interesting, by being the griot, okay, a griot is really a part are as black people, as, as people from the African diaspora, it's a part mm-hmm. of our tra- oral tradition. And griots have been poets, they've been museum, mu- musicians, they've been storytellers. I mean, they've been praise singers. And often, you know, the fact that here you're using an instrument from what some would say is a, another culture, but you're keeping that tradition that, you know, of what a griot is about. Out. And often now I find more and more people who are talking about how we're, we're losing a lot of our oral history, we're, we're losing mm-hmm. some, certain things that are so unique, and you have people who are doing archiving and people who are claiming that mantle of being a griot and hear that out of a loss, you found this, this instrument that then allows you to continue a tradition that is, you know, a part of us. Well, you know, it's interesting because, mm-hmm. because some people have, uh, and now there's a lot of conversation about whether or not we should even embrace the word griot, we should talk about jelly, uh, because there's the, that's another word that's been mm-hmm. used in, in certain um, West African countries to talk about this role of being a carrier of the, of the tradition. Um, and so for me, I use griot because I remember hearing um, Dr. Isai, Isai Barnwell, who uh, was prob- is probably best known for being that beautiful bass voice in Sweet Honey in the Rock. And she once said, you know, we don't have 
any we don't have the protest songs that we used to have. You know, we're, uh-huh, we're not uh-huh. singing. Uh, and I listen to a lot of young people, and they talk about Beyonce. No, no, no disrespect to the work she's doing, but as if she was the hottest thing and as if people don't know the history of, of black music before this day and age. And, and what really happened? Do you know Nina Simone? Do you know early Aretha Franklin? You know, I mean, you know, uh-huh. do you know all of these wonderful ways in which blues and spirituals and folk music have affected us? You know, a, a lot of times um, people see things, but they don't understand it. This is a great example of it. So Ella Baker, um, you may know her. A lot of people know uh-huh. Ella Baker as the, the mother of children's music. And so if you were a kid in the 60s and 70s, you probably heard an Ella Baker record. Um, Mm -hmm. I only recently understood, probably the last two years, that Ella Baker played the baritone ukulele. I always thought she was playing the guitar because when I saw her, I never paid attention to the fact that, oh, my God, that thing she's playing has four strings and not six. And so I think when we really give a, a careful consideration of what goes on in music and who's doing things, we can find ourselves there and know that a lot of the things that we would come to are not new. You know, we know there's um, Lemon Nash, who's out of Louisiana, who played the, the ukuleles. She has some great recordings from the, the 50s and 60s. Um, Laura, Laura Dukes was from Memphis, Tennessee, and did blues on her ukulele. There's a muse, Robert Rabbit Muse, um, who also played the, the baritone ukulele, but, but soprano as well. So if we're not going back in the past and doing a survey of where we have come from in the arts and theology and science, then we'll miss a lot and we won't understand that we've been there, uh, we've done that, we, we've, we've made some incredible uh-huh. strides. And so for me, music is one way of, of preserving that tradition because one of the things that I really want to do and I'm working on is um, giving voice to African-American spirituals and work songs um, through the use of the ukulele and a ukulele ensemble. Because the ukulele has this, especially the soprano, it has this beautiful harp-like sound if you play it in a campanella style, which is where you're playing different notes on different strings. So the notes overlap, kind of like a harp. And when you're putting our music in together and preserving that culture and singing the songs, Uh singing congregational songs, then we're not losing it. And then people can make a connection between that music and the blues and what we're seeing now, and then you can put the dirt dirt back on on rock music and see its real heritage in in African-American music. But if we're not looking at that and really going back to explore that, we miss a lot of information. You know, I had had a conversation with Eric Darnell Pritchard, and um, he wrote this book called um, 
Fashioning Lives, Black Queers, and the Politics of Literacy. And we had this conversation about literacy and how it has always been something that has sort of like hung over our head, but he honed in on how much music had always been a part of our literacy as black people. Because he said, you know, Mm -hmm. we use songs to say when it was safe to run, how to to escape north, what was a safe So music and song has always been a part of what we have, our own brand mm-hmm. of, of literacy. And, you know, and often, like you said, we forget it. Like, oh, so-and-so saying it, like you said, Beyonce said this in her song, and, and it's like all brand new. No, mm-hmm. no. Mm-hmm. Way back in the day, we were talking about liberation through song and through music and communally. You know, that's how we shared these stories. We'd come together and we'd sing, we'd play music, but we weren't just entertaining one another. We were educating. We were passing on oral history. Yes. And and that's what, you know, and I also heard that I could... I might not get my wings, but I could get that heart vibe through a ukulele, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean mm-hmm. so it's just like it is more than just like picking up an instrument, what you bring to this, this conversation about this. It's, it's really gives one a lot to think about. Yes, yes. You know, I think about um, African-American spirituals and I was uh, looking at a sheet of, of music um, and someone was, was playing the song and uh, it was probably something like uh, This Little Light of Mine or just some, some African American song and in the notation it said um, American folk song yeah. uh, and it's true <laughs> it is an American folk song but I, I think we're at a place where if we are not continuing to um, mark the tradition and celebrate the tradition, then we don't understand how the African aspect of that American folk song made all the difference. And so that's why I think it's so important that we are singing songs and we are laying claim to this music and helping people understand it. I think when people hear it now, particularly if they hear a song about, you know, I can't wait to go to heaven, then they think that this is just, you know, uh, the Negroes wish to to be released outside of slavery, Uh but really not understanding that if I'm in a place where I've been totally subjugated and I've been cut off from my, my family, then this idea of a place of community and and speaking that and suggesting that that at one point in time there's going to be a heaven and you can fight and you can steal away and you don't have to stay here and you can wade in the water and there is room for many more on this freedom train uh, and understand the real um, resiliency of black folks that's exhibited in our music but if you just hear it and you don't understand the history behind it, then when the Mormon tabernacle sings, 
I got a robe, you got a robe, all God's children got a robe. You just think it's a song. I got shoes, you got shoes. All you just think it's a song, and you don't understand the meaning and what that meant to black folks and this idea of sufficiency and this idea of having what you need in order to mark yourself and declare yourself as human in the world. So we need to talk about this music. We need to sing this music. Our children need to be acquainted with this music so they understand that some of the things we're dealing with now aren't new. And the way in Uh which we survived these things that marked us less than human was largely through our art and our understanding Uh of saying this is what makes me human, allows me to put my stamp on the world to say, I am here, I am sufficient, I am worthy, I'm glorious. It's in my art. It's in my music. And that's why I say music is a story. If you want to know something about people, listen to their music. If you want to know what people think about things, listen to the music. Listen to what people are singing. And then that's going to tell you so much about who those people are. Well, we're going to take our second break. I mean, that is, that is just, you know, really, that is such a, a, an important part. But I want to take a break here. I want to talk about when we come back, we're going to talk about where you're going next with it. And, um, and then we're going to ease on into the podcast. So we'll be right back. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. back here on Collections by Michelle Brown with my guest, Angela Denise Davis. You know, I often, in fact, regularly, I tell this story. And um, last week I was um, on a panel with NAACP and I told it because we took a group um, a a few years back, I took a group of young African-American youth to the DuSab Museum in Chicago. Mm. And towards the end, we got there late. I mean, you know, we just got there late. But one of the docents saw me with this group of my motley crew, and he said, you know, come in, let me, let, me, let me show you around. And he took us in this room, and he asked the kids, what do you see? And one of the kids went, slavery. And he said, no, mm. look. And he pointed out artisans. He pointed out craftsmen, and he said, we built this country. And, and he talked about how strong as a people we had to be for this young person to be still standing here today. Mm-hmm. And 
as I listened to you talk a moment ago, that's what I was thinking about. You know, this is this is why we need to know these songs. We need to know what these songs meant, and mm-hmm. and to and to reclaim that. And I think in many ways, especially now, when you see yeah. so much is going on, where it's easily to not have hope, but to know that we came from a people who, as my mother would always say, made a way out of no way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm just excited about, about your ukulele now, you know. I mean, I'm, I'm going to be down there. You're going to have to teach me something more than 20 people. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, you know, I, what I think, and, and, and I'll just say this real quickly, what I think that's so exciting to me, Michelle, is that, I think people listen to our music, they listen to the spirituals, they listen to the blues, and they just assume that these are things that the happy people sang. And they don't understand any of the genius behind it. Um, the, even in some of the, the technical approach with the whole blue scale, but this idea that, that it was the African-American genius and, and the artistry that made this music possible. Um, and this wasn't the only thing that we did as well because you had uh-huh. black people also excelling in classical music at the time. I mean, you know, I come from some, some really gifted people, and I celebrate that. I celebrate that in music and what I play and my desire to, to share that. Um, so there is genius there, and I just want people to be connected with that and realize that things didn't just emerge out of, our being quote unquote happy people, but out of the the deep well of our sorrow and our striving um, for human dignity and our celebrating just the act of being alive, that this mm-hmm. incredible artistry came forward. So the accessible ukulele movement. Yes. Let's talk about that. Connecting the hum and the strum of life. Love that. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, I recently started a GoFundMe campaign because one of the things that I am um, just really having to contend with is the fact that I need some assistive technology that would help me, um, help make it better for me to read music. And when I'm participating in community, to have access to something where I can magnify something and not rely on my large computer screen in my um, my computer at home. So I started this campaign to raise dollars to get accessible technology to help me um, read better, music better, see the music, um, and which in turn would help me with my teaching and arranging some of these spirituals and things of that nature. Uh, and it will also be an opportunity to help fund my um, participation in a ukulele festival here in the, at the end of this month. So uh, uh-huh. I have successfully raised uh, probably $1,100, and I have over 2000 more to go. Um, and so I'm just reaching out and asking people to support the campaign because one of the things, keeping with that um, African proverb, each one, teach one, and when you learn, teach, I know that, all of what I've learned over the past four and a half years, um, I give to my students. And the ukulele is that communal instrument where uh, I can learn something and then give it to my students, and they give it to somebody else. 
you know, I don't mind people coming and sitting in my beginner ukulele class and then going off and uh, looking at things on YouTube and exploring other ways of being in music. I see some of my students with their Facebook videos, and I get so excited because I'm like, oh, my gosh, they're still interested. They're still playing. It's great. And so as a teacher, the, the better I can be, the more I can learn, the more opportunities I have for professional development, the more I'm going to assist my community. So this Accessible Ukulele Project is a way of getting funding to help me do just that. So, you're, okay, you talked about the music. What's happening at the end of the month? So what's happening at the end of the month, which is really exciting, is the uh, 11th Annual Ukulele Festival uh, in North Bethesda, Maryland. And mm. we're going to be there, I think it's um, August the 15th uh, through the 21st. You know, I've been doing so much recently, my, my dates, the dates are going so quickly. <laughs> but it's going to be the, the mid to late part of August, and there's a ukulele teacher training that's a part of that wow. as well, which would help me as I am looking at strengthening the ensemble I just created, the Ukulele Grio Collective. And the other part are teaching moments during the rest of the week, uh, working with different ukulele musicians and teachers on different techniques. So I'll be in the D.C. area for a week in learning more things and connecting with people. Because that's another thing that I've learned about the ukulele community is that it's just so important to go and to connect with people um, because that's how you learn things, that's how you share things. And um, I'm just amazed by uh, how really kind and generous some, some people that I've met in the ukulele community have been. So it's going to be an exciting time. So. From, you know, you told me how when you went that it's mostly white and Asian. Do you see more black people getting in, finding, discovering the ukulele? Well, I think one of the reasons why I think this um, opportunity is going to be very unique for me is because this will be my first time at a ukulele festival. I've always shied away from them because I know I've never had that excessive uh, assistive technology piece, you know, I've, I, it makes no sense for me to go to a ukulele festival and, you know, everyone's playing something from their sheet music and I can't see it because I have nothing to read it on. Um, mm. So being able to get the information beforehand, which the um, ukulele festival folks have promised, to have that beforehand, to put it on um, an iPad and be able to participate, for me is going to be amazing and it's going to help me, um, you know, really think about how in the future I can engage a lot of these ukulele festivals because I think that's one way that a lot of people get introduced to it. Uh, there are also smaller workshops in one's community where people can do that, but even in those smaller workshops, I find that when I've been to ones in California or even here in uh, Atlanta at Youth Republic, um, I may be the only person of color, the only, uh, yeah, there, there may be a couple of Asian people, but I may be the only person of color. So I'm terribly excited when I am doing classes here in Atlanta and I see black folks interested in it, not just black folks, but also queer people who say, I feel safe in this place. 
you know, there mm. is a spot for me, and I don't feel like, you know, people are going to judge me just because I'm lesbian or I'm gay or what have you, that, that you know, this is a more welcoming space. So I'm very aware of how I move in the world, not just as a black person, not just as a woman, not just as a blind person, uh, not just as a lesbian, but how all of these things make it possible for me to really try to create and maintain a space that's welcoming for everyone. So that maybe someone says, well, I went to a workshop that Angela's gave, and you know, there were some other black people there, and I feel like, gosh, I want to take her class now, and I want to do more, and I want to play at church, or I want to play in school. I think the more exposure people have to folks from different backgrounds playing the ukulele, the more we're going to have in diversity. So that's one reason why I, I know a lot of folks are interested to see me coming because um, we do need much more diversity in this community. Yeah, I'll tell you. I, I'm just excited about it. And so the GoFundMe page, if someone's looking for it, should look for Ukrio. Um, Ukrio. And um, if we can put the link, I don't know how how easy that link is, but to put the link, I can give you the link and we can put it in the show notes. But people can also email me at U-K-E-G-R-I-O-T, Ukrio, at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. And I can send them more information about the campaign and classes and just more stuff on what I'm doing. Mm, wow. I mean, you know, anything is possible, you know. You, I mean, someone else out there thinking, oh, I couldn't. This might be just the instrument for you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. And the joy of it is that so many older adults are returning to music after, you know, not playing for years or they're picking it up now because they want to play music. One of the things that I'm excited about is as we now understand the brain's um, pattern of neuroplasticity and that it's continually moving. We thought at one point in time as you got older, your brain didn't regenerate any nerves and everything is as it is and everything was a decline from there. We know now about um, brain neuroplasticity and that music helps uh, shape our brains in very positive ways. And people who are dealing with Alzheimer's or, or other neurological issues the importance of music. And as we age, learning something new keeps that brain moving. So Mm -hmm. I am so excited about working with older adults, um, working with middle-aged adults who want to come and do something new, working with younger adults who are thinking, man, this can be my lifelong instrument. I can start now and and play it for the whole of my, my life. And all of those are possible. Um, you just have to come to it, it with a sense of humor and with a sense of openness and just have joy around it. You know, I, I tell people, mm-hmm. you know, you go at your own pace. You go at your own pace. Uh, and that's the only, the only real thing. You have to really understand that I may not learn quicker than John or Sarah uh, to the right or left of me, but if I honor my own pace, if I'm committed to learning and doing something new, there's no telling what this little sound box with four strings can do <laughs> to my life. No telling. Uh, well, you know, okay, great. Um, you know, that, that's the perfect segue because you host a, a podcast. And 
it's the Zami Nobla podcast, and I've talked to your partner who is with Zami Nobla, and it's for black lesbians over 40. And I'm going to tell you, and being over 40, <laughs> there are so many things that, that you know, you want to say to people, go out and grab it, go out and, and do it, try it, you know. And mm-hmm. I think that if if when I was 20, I had told you, like, that after I hit 50, I would decide to to write, to uh, perform poetry, to even sing, I would have said, oh, no, you know. But you have this podcast, and what you're talking to are black lesbians over 40 um, who want to find a, a place that gets them, that gets where mm-hmm. they're at in their life and that they're doing it. How did the podcast come about? I have always been interested in podcasting. You know, I was that kid who went to bed with a, um, and kids now don't even know about transistor radio. I know. I know. Underneath my my pillow, and uh, I would listen to music and radio programs all during the night. So I've always been interested in audio. And I was living in San Francisco in 2017 doing some work in career development there, specifically with people blind or visually impaired. And I moved back at the end of that year and decided I want to do something different. You know, I want to have um, an opportunity to um, really live out what I feel like I'm called to do in the world. And and I I believe part of that was to uh, really engage the side of me that was interested in podcasting. Um, so I approached the Zami Nobla board in May of 2018 and said, hey, I have this idea. If you all provide all of the equipment, I'd like an opportunity to create a podcast, and we'll look at you know doing it for the next uh, year and make some evaluations at that point in time. We just reached our year mark. Um, this month, uh, so that's exciting. And they decided to to take me up on it, and I learned everything I could about podcasting, the best type of recorder to get, the best type of mics. Um, and I was very clear that my goal, and I was supported by Zami Nobla, was to create a sound source for black lesbian herstory. I wanted to create the type of programming I wanted to hear. I wanted mm-hmm. to create episodes and interviews that if I'd heard them in my 20s, um, they would have made a stronger pathway to the woman I am now, almost at the verge of 50. Um, so I knew that what I was doing was creating work that we could hear now, but when we listen to it later, it would also be influential because we're telling stories. We're sharing what it's like to be alive and a black lesbian uh, and an older woman uh, in, on this edge of time. Um, and I just knew that it was very important because when I listened to other uh, productions in the pod sphere, I didn't see older black lesbians. I rarely saw black lesbians, and a lot of what I saw didn't really represent me or the other black lesbians that I knew. So um, I was even more impressed to say, hey, we're not here and we should be, and this is a way that we can really work on defeating isolation because many, many sisters out there 
older black lesbians are isolated. They, they're not into community or they're in a, a space where physically um, they can't get to be in community or they don't know how to, to get into community. So the podcast really is, we've heard from some women, has been a real lifeline to this virtual community that has inspired them to seek physical, physical community in their own areas. And, and it's, it's interesting, you know, how, how, how life intersects. I mean, I was at Radio Kid, too. You know, I tell mm-hmm. people, you know, I have listened to NPR for, you know, as long as I can remember. And I particularly like Terry Gross and Fresh Air because, mm-hmm. you know, to tell mm-hmm. those stories. But in part, mm-hmm. how I found my way to you, Angela, you know, was through someone who I had met through activism, who had this amazing story. And um, mm. she told me about Zami Nobla. Uh, but like mm. you said, how um, where you are and, the, and what you can do, because, um, and, I, and I, she knows I, I, I always call her name, Dr. Wilhelmina Perry. I mean, her uh, story, her story is so remarkable. I met her. I was on the board of the National Black Justice Coalition, and we started to talk. But what she talked about also as the very thing you talk about, about aging. And mm-hmm. she lives her life, you know, and she talks about the different things that she can do and how she does, but you don't hear that. And I've talked to yeah. um, Dr. Imani Woody, who's in, in D.C., where she says that she is doing it's Mary's house, and a lot of it has to do with particularly older LGB- lesbians, but LGBTQ community, because she said often people – they don't go to the clubs, they don't do it, and they're self-isolating. And here mm-hmm. is a way that they can hear about and do things and hear people who might be much like them mm-hmm. and go like, hmm, I could go do that, you know? Mm-hmm. I could go do right. that. I could, I could volunteer. I could be involved. You talk to a good friend of mine, Karen Williams. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. and I know people who go like, Oh, they talk about Wanda Sykes. Hey, Karen Williams was doing it, you know, back oh in my the gosh. day. Yes. Back in yes. the day. I mean, yes. and, her, and when she talks about her stories and what she's, and, it's, and what it takes to go through and the fact that she's going to it. And that also, that when you hit a certain age, your life isn't over. There's all these mm-hmm. options. And this is some of the things that I see in some of your, the people who you're talking to, and they're talking about their relationships, they're talking about health, they're talking about all these things that are, they're living their lives. My grandmother always mm-hmm. said, there's no sense dying till your time comes. And it seems like <laughs> you're bringing lesbians who are saying, you know what, just because you're not twerking in the club doesn't mean that life is mm-hmm. over. There's mm-hmm. these other things that you can do. Yeah, we have you, to speak to that. Mm-hmm. How do you go about finding the stories you want to talk about and, and what do you want what do you hope that someone will walk away from if they just sort of like any time they just happen to turn to it that will make them come back to the podcast the next time that they'll hear what do you what are you hoping that they'll leave with? Um I I I want people to leave with the knowledge that these fierce, beautiful, incredible black lesbians I interview have written receipts 
for our existence. Mm. No one never needs to wonder whether or not we were here (laughs) because this is proof. Uh, You know, I interview, like you said, Karen Williams, and I know you interviewed it too because I I listened to your podcast. I subscribed to your podcast. And one of the things that she said uh, and we joked about was, you know, no one's ever going to have to wonder is, is she is she a lesbian? Was she? You know, did I, did I see something in her jewelry box? You know, I, I think that that and we also make a rule. I made a rule that the women that we interview are out. You know, say okay. your name, say mm-hmm. your name, and that's the the our theme song was written by Latanya Peoples, and she wrote this very hot, this incredible song, "Sweet Baby," and uh, you know, part of that that song says, um, you know, talk about the, the importance of say my name, you know, I mean, say your name, say who you are. So these women are saying we're here, we're doing incredible work, uh, ain't we bad, ain't we bad, ain't we bad, you know, and you too, you too can do this. If if you've had to move in the world in this way and you've had some challenges and difficulties, you need some things you need to celebrate, you too. You too. Mm-hmm. So it's just look at me and you too. Uh, I want people to leave with that because mm-hmm. I've just I've been blessed. Um, and so every time I finish an interview, I'm like, oh God, that was the best one yet. <laughs> <laughs> and I mm-hmm. say this virtually after every interview because I just so I get so excited by hearing the stories that these women tell and. And you can probably relate to the, some of the best stories you get are after you press the stop button because people keep talking and, and you're sharing more and it's just phenomenal. So a lot of the women who um, um, agree to be on my podcast uh, are either women that I know they're somehow associated with Demi Nobler. They may have come in like Karen Williams did for uh, an event we had uh, and they're also incredible women that I want to interview, which is why I'm looking forward to interviewing you, Michelle Brown, <laughs> um, because you see what these women are doing. And I'm like, uh-huh, oh, God, uh-huh. we have to capture this. We have to put this in the audio vault so that people can, can realize what's, what's happening. So when I tell people what my goal is and, and what it is I want to do, and they understand that we're really just having a conversation. I don't give any any pre, um, you know, handout questions. It really isn't uh-huh. that. It's like, girl, let's sit on the couch and let's talk. You want some tea or a glass of wine? Let's just kind of have a conversation. Um, because for me, that's the best way of getting out the story. I mean, I'm a real fan of oral history, so I, I believe kind of like what we do when we talk about is that I tend to let my guests talk a lot longer than I usually do because I want them to tell their story because they're the ones who do it the best. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, you know what, uh, my my son also you know, Mom, you'll talk to anybody. And you know what? That's how, (laughs) you know, you you do. And then you hear these amazing stories. And that's what's so incredible to me that we have people out here who are doing just by living their regular lives. Yes. You know, are doing yes. such amazing, incredible things. And, yes. you know, to lift them up 
and to be able to do it. And like you said, and to be out and to be proud about who you are because unfortunately, and which is amazing to me, I was at something just this weekend, and here is a young lesbian who wasn't out. You know, mm. like she, and, you know, she gave me all the codes and everything to do it, but when it was like, but, you know, I don't want to talk too much to you because everybody knows that you are. But you know what? Everybody does need to know because I'm hoping that as you walk your path, as we walk our path out there, that one day she'll be able to say, hey, yeah, I am all that, and yes, I yeah. am a lesbian, you know. And yes. yes, I am a lesbian, not only for her, but for that next generation and that generation to do that. And also that they don't go like, well, where were y'all back when, you know, when we were, no, we were there. We were there. Right. Right? You, know? you know, it right. gets better, but to get better isn't a straight shot. Sometimes it's kind of hard, but we have that tenacity that we're going to make it happen. Yeah. Yes. Yes, you know, there's a that reminds me of this young woman, um, this woman who did a a play, and I think it's called Indigo, um, and her name is Karma Mayet. I think I'm pronouncing her name correctly, but a part of her play, she she talks about this um, this lesbian relationship between these two women who African American women who were enslaved, and I said, oh my God. This is amazing because how many times Mm -hmm. do we get to see someone taking an artistic look at what it must have been like to have been queer during the time of slavery? Uh Um, And so, again, the more we can have these lives where we are open and 